And I'm sort of sitting here in my office, the one I'm in right now, staring out the window, and the phone rings. And so on the other end, the woman says, hi, my name's Tracy, and I work with Will Smith. And I said, you mean Will Smith, Will Smith? And she said, yeah, that's the one. And she said, Will would like to talk to you about a movie he's working on right now in Canada called I Am Legend. So he wants to know, would you be willing to take a look at the script and then meet with him so he can bounce ideas about the script off with him? And I said, Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this special episode, we speak with Michael Haig and dive deep into hat numbers three and four, the servant and the entrepreneur, as we take the hero's journey into Hollywood storytelling and story selling. Michael Haig is one of the top story experts for Hollywood writers, filmmakers, studios, and entrepreneurs. He's a Hollywood giant and has worked on I Am Legend, Hancock, and The Karate Kid with Will Smith. Not to mention projects for Julia Roberts, Morgan Freeman, and many more. In this episode, you'll hear Michael's heroic journey from a young kid carrying popcorn from his dad's candy store to the most sought-after Hollywood script consultant as Michael shares his six-stage framework teaching you how to tell your sales and marketing story in the most impactful way that elicits the most emotion, just like they do in Hollywood. It's no surprise that Will Smith said, quote, No one is better than Michael Haig at finding what is most authentic in every moment of a story, end quote. And what's most exciting is that one of my all-time favorite mentors, Russell Brunson, credits Michael in helping him conceptualize his origin story in Epiphany Bridge Framework. I don't think I need to convince you that I'm a huge fan. So without further ado... Let's welcome Michael to The Seven Hats. Michael, welcome to The Seven Hats. Thank you. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, me too. So you are a storytelling coach to the stars. You've worked with Will Smith, Julia Roberts, Jennifer Lopez, Kristen Dunst, Charisse Theron, and Morgan Freeman, as well as every major studio and network out there. Now, I doubt that you just graduated from college and the stars came knocking down your door. And I'm suspecting that the seven hatters are biting at the bit to learn about the man behind the stories. So let's begin with, who was Michael Haig before the start of his heroic journey? How would you describe his life? Picture a little kid, you know, five or six years old, and he is walking along the sidewalk in this sort of average sized town. And he's carrying a big plastic bag it's pretty much larger than he is, filled with popcorn. That would be me. And I was walking from the candy store called the Caramel Corn Store that my dad owned and where he had made the popcorn. And I was walking down about four doors with the popcorn to one of the movie theaters in Salem, Oregon, because the theaters there didn't make their own popcorn. My dad did. So he would sell the popcorn to the theater and so if I took it, he felt like we could, he was friends with the manager, but he didn't feel good about saying, can I, my son get in free? But he figures if I'm carrying that bag, they'll let me in. And then once I give him the popcorn, then I can go in and see the movie. So that was, that was, it wasn't exactly my introduction to movies because I'd been probably saw some driving movies when I was a baby or something like that. But that's when I began my lifelong love of movies. It was quite a while after that that I sort of formulated what I considered to be a ridiculous pipe dream, and that is, wouldn't it be fun sometime to work in the movies? And I didn't tell anybody that because it seemed silly, and I you know, went on to college and so on, but that was always in the back of my mind. And it, it took 
maybe longer than it should have before I finally worked up the courage to actually act on that and, you know, get on the turnip truck and go on down to Hollywood knowing nothing so I could start following that particular dream. But it all, all grew out with just loving movies. And why I always I think I always wanted to be in the movie, but I don't mean in the movies. I didn't want to be an actor or star. I just wanted to be in that world that was created on the screen. And actually, when I talk about story, that's at the very, very core of everything I talk about is having whoever your audience is or your reader or viewer or listener, whatever it is, transport them into the story instead of just watching and observing something. So how old were you? Well, I just I just covered about 20 <laughs> years. But I carrying the popcorn, I think I was five or six and did that for a while until I guess we... Well, I don't, I don't remember when I ever stopped. I do remember I almost never got to see the credits of movies because the other thing was my dad said, well, you can't go when people are paying for tickets because if they see... My dad was very worried about this and I'm not sure why. But uh, so I always had to wait until people had gone in. Then I could bring in the popcorn and by then the movie had started. So I probably was, you know, nine or 10 before I saw the credits of a movie. But uh, and then and then the rest I said just carries through, you know, I had a sort of a Norman Rockwell upbringing and it was great. And I went to University of Oregon after I got out of high school. And and then from there, I went to Atlanta to get a master's degree in education. Uh, none of the, any of that had anything to do with being in the movies. That was just, you know, seemed like something to do. And I taught school for five years as I was getting and after I got that master's. I mean, taught second grade and then head start. Was the goal to become a teacher? Yeah, first, you know, first transparency is the goal was to stay out of the draft. Oh, nice. And because that was still going on. And and you could get a deferment if you were going to college. But then once I graduated, the draft was still in force and they hadn't even had the lottery yet. So one way to get a deferment is if you were to go to school to do something that was helpful to the community or society, like Peace Corps, you could have done. And one of the ways was I was in a special program where we were, while I was getting my master's, we were teaching in a low-income school in inner city Atlanta. And so that, and then during that time, the draft, well, they did the lottery and I was home free. But even after that, then I went back to Oregon and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was trained. I had a master's degree and I was trained to teach K through six, or that was my specialty. So I taught Head Start. But it really became clear that it wasn't my calling. I mean, I love teaching. I consider myself a teacher almost first and foremost, but I wasn't that good at teaching little kids. That wasn't my passion that, and certainly not my calling. I love that. So what was the opportunity to change your life's direction and what compelled you to take that leap? You know, that's an interesting question because, again, you know, these are kind of embarrassing questions because it seems like nothing about my career has ever involved me saying, I want to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to scheme and plot and work real hard to, to go to that next step. It was more like, oh, look at this that just fell in my lap. That sounds like fun. And so I was, there was a general idea. I want to work in the movie industry. But the tipping point, if anything, just like the draft was sort of the tipping point to becoming a teacher in a certain way, the tipping point to go to Hollywood was I was uh, dating a woman who got accepted into a, an advanced nursing program in LA. And so I thought, well, you know, I, I'm tired of teaching and she's going to L.A. So I'd have some support systems. So I thought, well, that's OK. We can you know, go together. And that got me there. And I think because I was just frightened of in retrospect, I know I was frightened because, you know, what if I fail or all those fears that one has. So this gave me enough sort of emotional support to get me there. And it was almost literally that because that relationship didn't last more than about two weeks after we got there, but it got me there. And then I got a place of my own and learned about a film school and that was it. So that was sort of the, that was the thing that moved me from pipe dream to acting on the dream. Got it. So now you're in a new situation, a new environment. You're in film school and you're starting to get a little work uh, and go out to the real world. <laughs> was it exciting? Was it scary? More exciting than scary, because 
I, I found the, the film school was called Sherwood Oaks Experimental College. It was this great school where you didn't get grades. You didn't get a degree. There were no credentials. You paid for any class you wanted to take and you could take it. It was kind of funky. It was up, up above a shoe store on Hollywood Boulevard. But the guy who directed that school got everybody who was big in Hollywood at one time or another to come speak. So initially, I got to see interviews with Richard Dreyfuss or everybody involved except for Spielberg with Jaws and uh, with other movies. And then eventually, the director, because I'd been there a while and he knew me, he asked me if I would moderate a class for actors and interview the actor Richard Benjamin. I don't know if you remember him, but he was he did, you know, Diary of Mad Housewife and Goodbye Columbus. And I was that I was terrified of. But I said, okay, I said to my girlfriend, who later became my wife, you know, if I miss up, if I nobody is going to do this better because I know this particular actor. And so once I started doing that, that went really well. And I so I got to interview Clint Eastwood, Rod Steiger. Billy Wilder and Jack Lemmon together. I mean, so I was doing all of that. That was, I sort of took a side trip there, but the, that was scary. But the reason the work wasn't particularly scary is, number one, I wasn't getting any work right away, but, I had, but at that school, I learned how to be a reader. That's known as a story analyst. I, I learned how to read a script, do a synopsis of the plot of the script in one page, and then make my recommendations. And then I made about 100 phone calls to try and get a job doing that. And I finally got one. It paid $10 a script. And it took me about a day to read, make my notes, write the synopsis and the recommendations. So my father was quite proud. My, my, my son is making 10 bucks a day down in LA. So I was supporting myself doing so, you know, things like door-to-door surveys about beer or whatever it might be. But that got me in the door. And the exciting part was... I couldn't believe that somebody, anybody in Hollywood was listening to my opinion about whether this script would be a good movie or not. And at that point, that was, you know, I've, I've been dreaming of this and now I'm in. I'm in at the lowest rung of any sort of ladder. But I love that. I love doing that. And then that sort of grew. Then one of the, the agent who hired me, one of his clients saw the coverage I'd done, the synopsis, and he hired me and I became a full-time employee, and that's when I got into doing what's known as development. It was more exciting than scary. I can just imagine. My wife's an actress, so she's into business, and I just know how exciting just the set is, uh, let alone being part of the business. So you're, if you're in film school, you're learning everything, right? You're learning directing and you're learning script writing. Yeah, I was learning the story, the, the, the classes I took. So I could learn. And my favorite class, other than the one where I learned to read scripts and do that, my favorite class was editing, editing movies. And that was that was fun. And I think I was gravitating to the two things you kind of do alone, you know, because editors, they don't exactly work alone because the director might be there. But it's something you can do in an isolation. I had no interest ever, ever, ever in acting. And directing was something I thought about because that was the only job I knew about other than acting when I first came. But I, I made a movie and I took a class and I'll do that. And I, it wasn't fun. I didn't find it very fun. I find it a lot of work. <laughs> when I say work, I mean, I do a lot of work, but I, the work I do to me is fun. That didn't seem fun. And I wasn't very good at that. So, so and one of the things about my career, if we go forward, is it's like my career has funneled me to where I am, it's just that funnel was not created by design. And well, when we get to it, I'll say it had a sort of a theme. But if you know what I mean, it wasn't like, okay, I didn't feel like I was exactly going up the ladder. I just wanted to do more and more work so I could feel like I was getting close to the inner circle, you might say. That's, that's awesome. So clearly, you have a knack for teaching. And every entrepreneur that I spoke to in the past when they first start out, right, yeah. when they first develop their skill set, they also develop a severe case of imposter syndrome. When you moved into teaching storytelling and script writing, did you experience that imposter syndrome? It's interesting. Like when I got to do those interviews, which I wasn't paid for, that was just, you know, I didn't feel like an imposter. I was actually good at that. When I felt like an imposter, when I was working as a a story development exec. When, when I graduated up from reader to now I'm working with other writers and I'm trying to find material for the producers I work for. 
And the part I felt most imposter about is I was just, I felt like I had no talent or, or skill at anything to do with the business, the, the extroverted part, making deals or even asking, you know, like anything that involved networking, like I should get to know the executives at the studios or at the networks and so on, which would have helped me greatly because, you know, the, that's what my bosses would like because that's how you set up deals. I didn't, I was no good at it. I was afraid of it. I didn't do enough of it and so on. And I just didn't feel like that was me. And so that was very much sort of imposter thing. When I taught though, when because I started teaching screenwriting, as soon as I felt like I knew about two weeks more information when people came to the class, because I started at that same film school and then I started teaching at UCLA Extension. I didn't feel like an imposter doing that because... I, not just I was good at it, but also I was just saying, look, you people are writing scripts. You need to know what how we look at it if we're receiving the scripts and what makes most scripts so bad and what you need to do to make them good. It was kind of selective imposter syndrome, I think. Again, maybe the best way to say it is what I did. Introverted elements of it. <laughs> and maybe this is true for every entrepreneur. I think we, we tend to feel like imposters more when we have to interact with other people. You know, in the privacy of our own office, we can probably feel, yeah, I'm an imposter, but it doesn't bother me. Nobody's going to judge me. Totally, totally. So every, every hero's journey has successes and what I call obstacles, not failures. So what did you face at that time? Hard to get a job. Probably, this is more in retrospect, still hadn't really found exactly what my calling was and feeling like and actually being very much an outsider, very much feeling, and, and truly I was on the periphery of what was going on, even though I worked for production companies and I was meeting with studio execs and so on. This is before I, but this is before I reached the point where I had written a book and was traveling around doing weekend seminars and got to be known a bit better. Again, this is more in retrospect than at the time, but part of the problem was I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. And I kept, and, and the natural progression when you go up the ladder in development is that you will become a producer because I, I didn't want to be a screenwriter. I tried that once and I'm not good at that either. <laughs> There's, the things I'm not good at are legion, but that wasn't there because people used to say to me, well, you know all this stuff about screenwriting. Why don't you write a script? And so I tried and that wasn't fun and I wasn't <laughs> good at that. I was good at helping other people write scripts. So anyway, trying to figure out how can I be a producer and trying to find material and all of those extroverted kind of things, that was what I kept kind of struggling to do and never, never had that much. I never, to be honest, I never had any success at doing that. I was good at development. And then until I started really teaching, until I started doing seminars and did other things, when you, when you say what was the struggle to me in, again, in retrospect, I think the struggle was I hadn't yet fully committed to the principle if you call it principle, I wasn't doing it to be righteous. But the thing I finally realized after decades worked is the principle that if I'm confronted, if something falls in my lap, I ask myself, does this sound like fun? And if I if it does sound like fun, I can always back out if it isn't. But if it sounds like fun and that's the basis of my decision, that's when good things are going to happen. And I've just been blessed with a lot of opportunities, it seems to me, falling in my lap, not out of the blue, there were reasons people contacted me, but I don't, I never went after Will Smith. You know, he came to me and when we get to that, I can tell you how that came about. When did it become clear to you that this was going to be your mark on the world, the point of no return? The way I look at a point of no return is like a full commitment to doing something. That was probably back when I got my first job. Never at any, any point in all this did I think, yeah, I don't know, maybe I should go back home to Oregon. This Hollywood thing isn't working out. If you're talking about that point when I really put both feet in, because I knew that was what I wanted to do, I would say one was when I quit my job with one of the producers who I just wasn't enjoying and he wasn't a great guy and so on. And I never went to work for anybody else after that. And that was dodgy. And there were times when I, after becoming self-employed, that, that money became a real issue. But it didn't become an issue where I thought, yeah, I should, I should become a pharmacist. That Maybe that would be fun. That didn't, you know. So the commitment to Hollywood was sort of always there. The commitment to stories eventually, not just Hollywood, was always there. 
But uh, the bigger ones were, am I going to be able to make a living? You know, my wife and me support ourselves with what I'm doing and those kind of struggles. I mean, it's awesome when you find something you love doing and you're immersed in it and it works out. So now you're a teacher and coach to the stars, to the highest of echelons. What's it like to play at such high stakes? First of all, let me clarify something and then I'll tell you a little story and I'll tell you, maybe that'll answer it. But the first thing is, uh, when you introduce me, I didn't want to say it right away, but the fact is I have not directly worked with Charlize Theron and, and Julia Roberts and so on. Will Smith, Morgan Freeman, I have. But what it actually says on the bio is I've been involved in the development of movies starring these people. Among the projects that I worked on and consulted with either the production company or the studio, or in one case, this couple of cases, the star, all of those, those, those projects have, in different situations, starred those people and a bunch more. It's not untrue, but it's a way to sort of pump up the bio and so on, because I've been, I was contributing to the movies they made. And the other thing is, what is it like to be at that echelon? Let me tell you how I met Will Smith, because this, this is sort of a fun story to me. And that is, I mentioned before the inner circle and how I wanted to do that. Well, I was never feeling like I was in the inner circle. And from time to time, I just get sort of pouty about that and think, well, yeah, I, I enjoy what I do. And I am working in Hollywood, even if it seems like sort of the periphery, because I'm not any kind of household name in Hollywood. You know, it'd be great sometime to get into that arena where the best of the best, you know, and work working like that. And I'm sort of sitting here in my office, the one I'm in right now, staring out the window and the phone rings. And so on the other end, the woman says, hi, my name's Tracy, and I work with Will Smith. And I said, you mean Will Smith, Will Smith? And she said, yeah, that's the one. And she said, Will would like to talk to you about a movie he's working on right now in Canada called I Am Legend. So he wants to know, would you be willing to take a look at the script and then meet with him so he can bounce ideas about the script off with him? And I said, yeah, I think I can find the time. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm hanging blinds. I had to pause for dignity for a little bit. And I said, sure. So sent the script, set it up. Finally, we have the call. And, you know, and immediately I'm saying to my wife, how cool is this? You know, the biggest movie star in the world wants to know what I might think about this script. And so we get on and hello, how do you do? How do you do? And he's very gracious and so on. And I said, look, I know you want to talk about this script, but you got to let me do the fan thing for a minute. And he said, okay, because he knew what I meant. And I said, I just want to tell you that the movie Hitch is one of my all-time favorite movies. In fact, I said, I lecture all over the place. And I've countless times used Hitch as an example of a great romantic comedy because it hits all the beats of a romantic comedy, especially why the two people are together. And he said, well, I should tell you, you know, one of the reasons I called is because I had seen your video called The Hero's Two Journeys, and I really liked it. And so the whole time we were developing the script for Hitch, we kept asking ourselves, now, are we doing what Michael Haig said we should do and having these people get together on the inner level? Wow. And I thought, I'm in the inner circle. Wow. So, so when, you know, my experience at that echelon, I felt like I was allowed into the inner circle by Will. It was sort of like Will plus guest for a temporary period. But that was the beginning of just a really cool relationship and some of the most fun I've ever had. Because after that, he wanted my input on or my, yeah, my input on um, Hancock. And then shortly after that, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith was, had written a script and was going to direct. And so they asked if I would meet with them. And that was the first time I met them in person. So I got to go to their house so I could coach her or consult with her. And he was there as well. So I got to meet him in person. And shortly after that, then they put me on retainer. And so I was on retainer for some years with his company working or, or you know, con contributing or whatever you would say, consulting or working on the scripts for his movies, but even more than that, other movies that were be in development by that company. And so that was just great. I love doing that. But even then, I guess 
Maybe there was a little imposter syndrome, or not in a negative way. I felt like, you know, I was really just, I was really impressed, you know, and I loved being, just knowing I was working with an actor, fortunately, that I loved and loved his work and doing that. So that was really cool. But it was also great, not because it was him so much, but because I always had to bring my A game working with him because he's brilliant about story already. You can just thumb through a script and come in. I had to be prepared. And those sessions of working like, at one point, we they were staying in a in a mansion up in the mountains over Christmas, and so me, the director, the producer, the writer, and Will all got together at this place up in Park City, Utah, and spent three days working on the script or talking through the script for Karate Kid. Amazing, because that his son started. That was so. I I guess that's how I'd answer the question. Moments like that are really exciting, partly because. It's cool. I mean, just to know I'm, you know, sometimes I'd be pinching myself and say, wow, I'm, I'm telling, I'm telling Will Smith that that idea he has is full of shit. And, <laughs> and I thought, and I said that to him once I, I said, you know, you're, re- it's really neat that you're open to hearing all these things, you know, cause a lot of top movie stars wouldn't do that. He says, if I'm not, if I'm going to do that, there's no point in you being here. That was cool. I don't live in the inner circle, okay? I don't even live in the next neighborhood over, you know? But every once in a while, I get to, you know, move on in. And, and it's, you know, and I, I, I've now gotten to tiptoe into inner circles of some other arenas once I started expanding outside of Hollywood. Once you get in, you get in, and, and then there's no stopping you. So can you spot a hit? And how much of the script do you really change? I don't really change much of anything because I'm not brought in to rewrite the script. I'm brought in to give my ideas about how the story could be made better, the script could be made better. And like with Will, he's not writing it either. It's always a group thing. So it's Will and usually the screenwriter is there or the screenwriter and director or producer, whoever it might be. It depends on the situation. So my job is to I, I get it's to consult. I mean, that's really the way to say it. It's not like a consultant's going to come into a company and then say, let me run your assembly line or whatever it would be. It's my opinion. And I, I swear in all the different projects I did with Will, I don't know that I could watch any of those movies and then turn to somebody and say, oh, yeah, that scene, that's that's because of me. It's more the, the sort of holistic thing. And part of it is just through giving ideas or saying you might want to think about this or Actually, the big, one of the biggest parts of my job, whether I'm coaching somebody on a greenlit go project that's going to go into production or someone who's trying to break in, is I just ask a lot of questions. Hmm. Questions are really the key. That might be true for pretty much any consultant anywhere, I sense, because you want to ask questions and let the person you're coaching discover what might not be working. And I, that, that, that took a while to learn. I stood when I started out and for the first, you know, maybe decade or so when I was, you know, working for producers or became a coach and consultant on screenplays and do critiques and so on. I would say, okay, well, now that we're meeting, let me tell you what you need to do. I wouldn't say it that way. I'd be a little more more gentle about it. And that's not going to get you nearly as far as if you just say, well, why? Why does this character behave that way? When I first met with Will and Jada and was working with her, one of the things that was really cool about that, or I noticed is, fortunately, by then I'd learned that. I I was good at asking questions. And by the time we met, I could see that Jada was just shell-shocked because when you're in, in the movie business and you're that close, you've got so many people telling you what you should do and bombarding with ideas and so on. And she hadn't met me before or worked with me before, and I could tell she was a little wary Usually I can get somebody to realize I'm their, the, the best friend they have in the room if they're a screenwriter. And so I just started asking questions about the characters and not the, you know, asking about secondary characters and so on. And it was one of the best coaching sessions I've ever had. It was great because then she felt like, okay, this guy's read the script. He knows what he's talking about and he's not telling me what to do. That idea of asking the right questions and, and letting that be the person's guide to doing what they can do best. Absolutely. So I have a couple more questions about your life before we move into your work. What's your mission today? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What I realized some time ago is my mission is tell people tell better stories so they can change people's lives. That's, that's sort of it in a nutshell. 
that was the mission I realized I was on. It wasn't like I picked it. It was like, you know, you sort of look around and say, you know, I realize everything I do is to help people write better movies or, or novels, because I started working with novelists or TV shows. But because I love movies so much because they have the power to change somebody's life, not in the most obvious ways. Sometimes you can get people to become activists or, or change in that way. But I mean, you know, you let people step outside themselves and experience life in the world through the hero of that movie. And my belief is, this is one of my sort of core beliefs, is that when you tell a great story, whether it's a movie or TV or whatever, if you do it well, then what you've done is you've transported the audience or the reader inside the characters, the hero. Movies work not because we like watching people in danger or fall in love. It's because we want to have that experience. And so by doing, telling the story properly, so there's real empathy, then we're the ones who fall in love with Jack in Titanic. And we're the ones who stop, you know, the villains from outer space in one of the Avengers movies, or we're the ones who find true love in Sleepless in Seattle, or whatever it might be. And I think that in those movies, always that ability the hero has is going to be built on courage. They're going to have to find the courage to do the thing they weren't willing to do at the beginning of the story. Sometimes it's physical. It's like a James Bond movie. That's not that deep. But in like romantic comedies or more movies that go deeper, even action movies that go deeper, it's really finding the courage inside to let go of their, to leave their comfort zone and leave the safety of the identity or the persona they've got and, and do something outside that, do something bigger than themselves. And if we experience that courage through that character, I think we take a bit of it home. Absolutely. That's how you can change lives, among other things. So sure, you can use stories to entertain and get people to buy tickets and get butts in seats. Or if you're in business, to get people to buy a product or hire you or bring you back for another speech or whatever it might be. But the real value and the real high of it is when you can also instill in people through the story the courage for them to go away and do things they haven't been willing to do before in order to make their lives better. I love that mission. I have the same mission, changing lives. You, you know better high. Absolutely. So I have a, I, I'm really excited about this question because I'm going to turn it around on you. I'm going to ask a question that you ask your students. So in the past, you've challenged storytellers with the following question. I'll do whatever it takes to achieve my goal. Just don't ask me to blink because it, it's just not me. And the blank, for those seven hatters listening, is the thing that the storyteller is most afraid of. What's your blank these days? It's the same blank it's been since I was carrying popcorn when I was five. And that is, uh, just don't ask me to upset anybody. I'm going right to the, to the psychological jugular, but that's, that's the thing. And that isn't, that isn't a rule that serves you well if you're trying to enter the inner circle and, or even, even the outer circle in Hollywood because, or anything. I mean, if you're operating, if your operating uh, principle is, well, I don't want to make any waves. I don't want anybody to be upset. I don't want to hurt their feelings or whatever. You don't want to go out and try and do those things. But if that's your fear, that's a fear, like any of them, that will hold you back because sometimes you have to do that. And it's still, I, I mean, and my belief is that we always, if we have an issue like that, whatever your issue is, you're never going to get over it. I don't, think, I don't think it's curable. What I think does happen is you get better at dealing with it, and it's like a spiral going up. And you're going to circle around to that issue again and again and again. But every time you do, it's going to be at a little higher level, meaning you're, you've, you've accomplished things that now that fear is going to come into play in, a, in, in an arena that you hadn't occupied at first because you were too scared to go to that level. That, that's, that's sort of the core to me is that it's always been there. And what I discovered is one of the biggest ways I was able to move forward in spite of that, because it still is a fear, is I started to realize this as a consultant or as a speaker or teacher when I, when I speak to groups, I'm not that afraid. If I have a client that I'm working with on a script or coaching a client in any arena, I don't really worry about upsetting them. 
I think the reason is I've had a lot of experience and I know I'm good at that, but also, it, and, and so that makes it more comfortable for me. And also I realize that that's not how I'm going to serve somebody. I'm going to serve somebody by not worrying if they're upset, but knowing that what I have to do is help them solve whatever problem they have and achieve whatever goal they want. Now, that doesn't mean I become mean and nasty and purposely upset them. I don't, I, I generally think most of the people I've worked with would say, no, he didn't really upset me, or maybe I did, because I, a lot of times they'll think, I thought this script was done, you know, and, you know, they thought they, I was just going to tell them how great it was, and they had a typo, and I say, yeah, you may want to start from square one again. I'm less susceptible to that fear when I'm doing this thing that I love than I am in other aspects of the real world. But the answer is so that that question you ask, I've thought about it for years and years and years. And that's I sort of know that's the thing. Part of my job is to instill in people the idea you are courageous enough. You, you'll be able to do this. Nice. You'll be able to do this and and inspire them or motivate them, whatever you'd want to say, so that they can overcome whatever their fear is. So thank you for that story. And for the seven hatters, what we just did, and I know you knew this uh, as I was asking the questions, but what we just did is something sneaky, which was to tell your story using your six stage plot structure. So let's tell the seven hatters a little bit about your work. How did you come up with that framework and how much did Joseph Campbell's work influence you? Okay. uh, Joseph Campbell, not at all. Uh, because it's not really a mythical structure. What the, the number one source of anything I've learned or know or whatever is by watching a lot of movies. Wow. I, I mean, that's just the long and short of it. I, I mean, that's, that was my real school. I learned nothing getting that master's degree in education, but I've seen a lot, a lot of movies. And one of the biggest, we didn't really get to this as a question, but when I said I got that first job at, at $10 a day reading scripts, That was the best education I could have had and probably the best education maybe I've ever had as far as the things, what I do as a career, what I do for a living. And that is the the scripts that I was handed, I get paid $10 for, they were awful. I mean, when I first got the job, the agent said to me as I went in to get my first pile of scripts, he said, well, don't expect much. You'll be lucky if one out of 100 of them is worth recommending. And I thought, well, that guy is sure cynical. (laughs) So I read 100 and I read another 100 and I thought, geez, he was being generous. Not because they were all dreadful, but because they couldn't be recommended because they didn't work. They weren't emotionally involving. And so then I started asking, okay, what's the difference between these, these 200 scripts and the movies that are making money at the box office? And as soon as I started comparing Everything that the good, the good, the successful ones or the good ones were doing that the other ones weren't, those became the foundation of the principles that I, you know, scatter around or impart or talk about with the process. And then I just sort of formalize it and so on. My approach, the reason you might have asked about Joseph Campbell is that the video or the lecture that's audio or video that Will Smith saw called The Hero's Two Journeys. That was a lecture I actually gave with Christopher Vogler, who wrote a book called The Writer's Journey. And he is all about Joseph Campbell and the heroes. Ah, that's how it came about. Got it. Okay. So I said to him, we should do something together. And since your thing is the hero's journey, and my thing is going deeper into the character, into that courage, fear, inner journey stuff, we'll call it the hero's two journeys. And then fortunately, this is one of the things that sort of, I, I hate to admit it wasn't an idea that I cooked up that was just you know, bound to change my life. At the last minute, I thought, you know, we should probably film this thing. And so we got some some filmmaker or, or cinematographer who didn't know what she was doing, really, and did kind of a poor job. But we got on film. Somebody said, and I didn't know what to do. So somebody said, and came, well, you got this footage. I'd like to turn it into a video set and do that. Anyway, so I talked about my six stages, which we just sort of went through, and I can emphasize in a second. And Chris talked about how my approach... That's psychological, so to speak, approach. That's he, he says my approach is more psychological and his is more mythical. And we compared the two when we were on stage and we sort of teased each other about it and debated things and so on. But that, that one thing has done more for my career than any single 
work I produce more than my more than the book over here writing screenplays to sell or the one over there for business people you know storytelling made easy that was what Will Smith saw that made him want to give me a call that's what Russell Brunson saw that made him want me or him and Dagan Smith want me to come talk at their conference and how I first met them and what what and and then that process that's when he heard my process and incorporated it into click funnels and and devote a chapter of one of his books to, to that process and me and so on. So how did I come up with that? So it's really that. It just, and when I coach, if I'm coaching screenwriters and filmmakers and a lot of times novelists, I'll always be referring to other movies and say, well, this is how this movie handled this. Or you might want to rethink that because I can't think of any movie that does it that way. When I started expanding out into consulting with business people, I still do that. Everybody knows that my background is Hollywood and movies are sort of the foundation. That's why I call the new course I've made Hollywood Story Selling, not just story selling, because you can use stories to sell. That's the idea. But it's Hollywood storytelling. It's the idea that Hollywood knows how to create an emotional experience better than any any industry anywhere around the world. That's that's their stock in trade. So anyway, it started with those really bad movies and then it just evolves and I learn more as I coach more people in, in, all the way through the line. I love that. It's a catchy title, The Hero's Two Journeys. I mean, it's a great catchy title and I'm a little envious because one of my mentors is Russell Brunson. I would love to work with him one day, but I'll tell you something. I was introduced to you via his uh, lectures and it's just, it's, it's amazing. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah, that's, that's how I knew who Michael Haig was. So give us the, the one minute summary of the six stage plot structure, because ultimately, as Russell Brunson says, everyone's going to love you and they're going to go and geek out on this. So they get your course and whatever materials we'll, talk, we'll speak about at the end of the, of the podcast and give the seven headers an opportunity to learn more about you. But if you had to do a, a one or two minute you know, summary of the six page plot structure, what would it look like? Let me do this, if I may, since I know most of your followers are entrepreneurs in that arena, because when I started doing more and more work in the business arena, starting with Internet marketers, and also I got I met someone named Patricia Fripp, who's just this high, high level, one of the best, uh, well, presentation experts. She's a great, you know, used to be at one time was president, first woman president of the National Speakers Association. And I heard her and we talked and we got to be pals. And so she introduced me to a lot of speakers. But as soon as I started working in those arenas, I started molding the six stage plot structure you're talking about that I developed in that video and so on and tried to streamline it because in business, most of the stories people would be telling would be much shorter and much more streamlined. And the big difference is in Hollywood, they want they create stories. They want to make money before you go into the theater. So they want to sell tickets. But nobody. So people are paying for the story in business. Nobody's going to pay you for your story, you know, but what they will pay you for is whatever your advice or your product, or your service is. And the story will help you do that. But you're trying to persuade people to take action different than the action Hollywood wants people to take, which is just get butts in seats. Okay, so I streamlined and I turned the six stages into six steps. So as fast as I can, I'll go through this. And that is step one is the setup. And that is the everyday life that the person is living before they start pursuing whatever goal the story is about. When you ask me the question, well, tell us about your, you didn't call it your origin or setup, but you said, where, where did it sort of begin? And I told you the story about being a kid and dreaming of movies. That would be the setup. And that's also where you introduce the hero, but it's got to be the hero's everyday life. It can't, they can't already be pursuing the goal that the story is about. Then step two is what I call the crisis. Then something happens that is going to force that character who's kind of in a static place at the beginning, oftentimes stuck tolerating a situation that wasn't good, and it's going to force them to move out of that setup, that, uh, that place where they're existing, and take action to do something. Now, that crisis it could be the crisis could be something bad happens. Okay, they lose their job, or they get a big order that they can't fulfill, or they get a diagnosis that that is negative. And so in response, they've got to figure out what am I going to do and so on. If you're in business, and you're telling a story about a satisfied customer, after the crisis, that's when you come into the story, because the hero is actually the customer you have. 
or the client. So then in that step two, the character has to formulate a specific visible finish line to cross. They have to have a goal that we can imagine what it would look like to achieve. Now, the thing that was different about us going through my life story, like you did, or my career story, whatever you'd say, is that was a series of, of goals. If I were to do those things, like a story within that was the story about meeting Will Smith. And the story was the story about how I went to L.A. and so on. And that's fine. So you can apply these to the overarching story like you were doing, but it didn't have a singular goal that you can envision. I mean, it sort of did. I wanted to be in Hollywood, but I sort of made it to Hollywood. Okay. So after the crisis and that goal is identified or set, now the story is about the hero or you, if it's your own story, wants to achieve this goal. Now, the next two steps are pursuit and conflict. And that means what are the steps that you or the hero of the story has to take to get there? And most important, what are the big obstacles to overcome? Because always, 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 if you're telling a story, your number one objective before anything else must be to elicit emotion. You're telling stories to give your audience or your prospects an emotional experience. So they feel something. They'll make the decision intellectually to buy what you want or do what you want them to do. If they don't feel like that's the right thing to do, if they're not emotionally involved, it won't work. So the conflict, whatever those obstacles are, that's what elicits the emotion. The bigger the obstacle, the bigger the problem, the more emotionally involved we are. And then step five is the climax, the moment when the hero achieves the goal. And the step six is the aftermath. And that's where you want to convey the new life that the hero is living now that they've gone on that journey. And if you happen to be, if you're an entrepreneur and you're telling stories to get your prospects to take action that will help them change their lives through you, then you want to be sure that the aftermath for the hero of whatever story you're telling matches the life that your audience dreams of. So they've had the emotional experience of actually living, achieving and living the life that they wish they could. And now all they have to do is do it again because they've already done it once subconsciously. That's sort of the essence of it. And again, I think I can spend weeks learning your stuff and, and you can't do it in one podcast, but I love the summary. And I think for any entrepreneur that's interested, they'll go and geek out on your work for sure. Every successful entrepreneur eventually learns to be a great marketer, I think, or at least needs to be. And in marketing, story is everything. So I'm thinking if you can teach the seven hatters a thing or two about effective storytelling, that would be a good thing for us. So a couple of questions there. What are the top three things that you would instruct an entrepreneur as they develop their heroes to journeys? The first thing you want to be sure you do is when you're coming up with or trying to find a story out of all the hundreds of experiences you've had in your life, always find one that has a specific goal that is what I call visible. And visible means if you were to tell somebody what the hero's goal was in this story, they could imagine what it would look like to achieve that. And if you told the same thing to somebody else, they would envision the exact same thing or very close. An example I sometimes use would be, if, if you say the goal, the character's goal is to be rich, that could look like anything to anybody and it doesn't have an end point. I mean, really, are you rich when you make your first $100? Some people would feel rich if they had that much. Or do you have to have a billion? Some people wouldn't feel, you know, and like that. So instead of saying, I, you know, my goal was to be rich, if you make it a specific amount of money, then it's going to be much clearer. So if you said, my goal, let's say it's the hero of this story suffers from arthritis. And you say, well, my goal is to be healthy. I can't picture that. If you said, well, my goal is to overcome arthritis, that would be a little closer. But if the goal was, I want to be healthy enough to walk my daughter down the aisle when she gets married in six months, now you've got the makings of a good story. Because everybody, all if, when you're listening to this, I guarantee in your mind, you pictured somebody walking somebody down the aisle. And now it's much easier to feel connected with that character. Okay? And then that comes to the next thing that you want to make sure you understand. And that is when you're telling the story, whether you're the hero, meaning it's a story about yourself or a satisfied client, and you need those stories because the satisfied client you worked with is closer to your prospect who you want to buy your service than you are. You know, you want to tell a story about somebody who did exactly what you're asking your, your prospect to do 
and won and succeeded. So now you have a litmus test, and that is every single thing in that story has to somehow either move that character closer to that goal, to that visible finish line that's the climax, or it's going to create more obstacles to it. And if you stay with that rule, you're not going to waft away and turn in something that turns into a story about, you know, listening about somebody's summer vacation. Well, first we went here and then we went here and then we saw a moose here and then we went on this right here. That's those stories. You, Everybody, we've all had to sit through stories like that. That won't happen if you have the clear goal and then everything contributes to that. And the third thing is it's sort of in line with what I already said. You want to be very clear when you pick the story, what is the action you actually want your prospect or who the audience or reader who's ever reading your sales letter or your, your webinar or if you're on a podcast or whatever it might be. So you want to be sure that, that of what the action is that you're trying to persuade someone to take in order to solve their problem or improve their life, like make more money or whatever they want to do. So you want to pick the stories about either the people who you've worked with who have accomplished that exact same goal or who have who have gotten to a point where they took the action that you're trying to get your audience to take and they succeeded by doing that. If it's a story about yourself, it might also be that kind of story or the variation would be it might be a story about how you accomplished a goal and by accomplishing that you learned one of the principles that you live and work by or one of the one of the some kind of expertise that you will now have to deliver to other people this wasn't my intent i was just telling about the story but it was a really well asked question to do that because when i told the story about being a reader and reading all the bad scripts and then comparing them the value of that story if I was in front of an audience of prospects who I wanted to hire me as a story coach. That would be a goal. They're not looking that my prospects wouldn't be learning. You know, their goal wouldn't be to figure out what makes good movies good, but it would establish that now I know what makes stories good. And that establishes more of my expertise. And you tell that kind of story. So your prospects will see you as an expert, not just an expert, but as one who is able to solve their problem and has a plan to do it. Yeah, spot on. So I know that there are entrepreneurs that are listening right now that in their mind, they're like, I don't have a story. Does every entrepreneur have a story? And what if they just consider themselves, you know, ordinary? Well, let me answer the fir- first one you said is, you know, they didn't think they had any story to tell. Okay. Because you said, does every entrepreneur have a story? And I would say every entre- entrepreneur has dozens and dozens of stories. And then out of, out of that, when you know, like when you apply the things I just said, or when you know all the qualities of what would make a good story, you can narrow that number down. And so some people, they will say, I don't have any stories to tell. But a bigger, a bigger block, a bigger argument against telling stories is the second one you said, and that is, I'm just ordinary. What you have to understand, and you're going to have to trust me on this, but I, I can back it up by looking at movies as well as successful clients I had. Ordinary is what you want to be. Extraordinary is a lot harder to tell a story about because if you were to step on a stage, let's say, and you're making a presentation and you are an expert at, you know, take your pick, you, you become a, a billionaire, a multimillionaire by your investments. OK, you're a master of investment. You're, you're a money manager or, or investment advisor. And if you get on the stage and say, well, I am a multimillionaire. And if you listen to me, then you, too, can be a multimillionaire. And that's the essence of your presentation. Now, some people will go for that. Some people would say, okay, well, I'll give it a shot. What you're basically saying is, how do you do? I'm so-and-so and I'm extraordinary. And I only hope that you'll follow my advice. And then maybe you too can be extraordinary. And you know what? Most of the people are saying, yeah, you're lucky. (laughs) If you're extraordinary, you're lucky because I'm not extraordinary. But if you get on the stage as a multimillionaire, and you tell the story about how you were poor once, or how you 
lost all your money or how you whatever the the if you start the story where you were ordinary where you seem like us where you seem like somebody who doesn't know the answers or stumbled around or made a lot of mistakes here's what will happen we will draw be drawn to you as the hero of that story we will feel much greater connection and empathy because you sound like the place that we are right now or we've been too and then if you take us on the journey you took to become the multimillionaire expert then when you get to the point where you can reveal and now I'm a multimillionaire and I'm helping other people we will celebrate your victory because we've had the victory so the idea that you shouldn't tell stories because you're nobody special that's why you should be telling stories because that's how we all feel if we're sitting if we're sitting in the audience looking at you and you're extraordinary we we feel like we'll never reach that level. We want to know we want to we want to know how not special people succeed. I don't buy either of those. If you ever come to me and say, "Well, I can't tell stories for one of those reasons," you're just going to hear what I just said again because that doesn't. And oh, I was going to back it up. Here's the evidence I have. Go look at the top 100 money-making movies of any period and tell me how many of those are about extraordinary people unless they're sequels. Even superhero movies. Even if you look at Captain America, he starts out as this pipsqueak, muscleless, wimpy sort of guy until he has you know whatever the thing happens. Or Peter Parker before he got bit by the spider, he was he was very unextraordinary. And the, or King Speech, that guy became the King of England, and he was already a prince. But to us, when we meet him, he's just a poor schlub who stutters all the time and has to give these speeches that he's incapable of doing. He's not extraordinary until he goes on the journey of the movie, and that's what those are the stories people respond to. Man, Michael, I love you. I, I just you made my day. So many gold nuggets. I'm sure the listeners would just that they're going to get something out of out of this episode. So I'd like to close my interviews with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? I, I'm probably just going to go over what you ask about. I'll do whatever it takes to succeed. Just don't ask me to blank. That's in The Hero's Two Journeys. And, and in my new course, I say that and in the book behind me and so on, because it's a great way to figure out what is the what I call the inner conflict for the character. What is their identity they don't want to leave up to? And what I, I had to stop being somebody whose driving motivation was to make sure everybody was okay. Everybody was taken care of emotionally or nobody was getting upset and become someone who realized I can, you know, that I will, first of all, personally or selfishly, I will have a lot more success and a lot more fun if I can let go of that. And then what I discovered is letting go of that has been enabled me to be way more helpful to people. Because really, do you want a coach who's so worried about you being upset that they won't tell you you're doing anything wrong? That that would not be that would not be a very successful or helpful consultant. So that's it. It's that transition or the the ever the never-ending tug of war between I don't want to upset anybody or don't want to make feel you know bad, and I need to let go of that and think more about how can I help this person solve their problem? Or how can I do what I love? I mean, I'll just keep it selfish. How can I continue to have fun with what I do? Now, keep in mind, that's mine. There are other issues. I mean, sometimes there are people who, who don't have that issue at all. They're not worried about upsetting anybody, but maybe what they're afraid of doing is risking getting too close to somebody. Or maybe what they're afraid of doing is exceeding the success that a parent had or a spouse has. I mean, there, there aren't that many. Uh, down at its core, there's a few key issues, inner issues, you know, psychological issues that keep showing up in whatever permutation. So it's not like the outside. I mean, there's a multitude of goals and personalities and ways people like succeed, but there are fewer inner conflicts, you know. So uh, that's just mine. But of course, the same principle, you just figure out, okay, what is what are you most afraid of? Or what is it you would not be willing to do to advance your career or your business? And your first answer would probably be, well, I wouldn't break the law. 
Okay, that's your what I call that's your identity talking. That's your ego. That's that's the protector in you wanting to go to something so obviously you wouldn't want to do that you think you're off the hook. But you'll know you found the answer when you don't want to address it. When you don't you don't want to have found it. You don't want to acknowledge maybe that's it because it's scary. It's scary to tap into what am I really afraid of? Oh yeah, for sure. I deal with it. Everybody deals with it. The the most successful people in the world deal with it. Yeah, and, and uh, I'm sorry, but let me just let me loop back, do a callback because that's another reason why you are a great person to tell a story if you aren't special. Because if you have blocks, if you've been held back, if you've made mistakes, now you're tapping into some level of emotional fear. This is when your story becomes universal because you could be someone you could you could be a bronco buster who's successful at that. And if you get on a stage, I would never want to, never have wanted to. I have no interest in being a bronco buster. But if you're willing to be vulnerable up there and say, I'm nobody special because I've always been afraid of this. And when you're that vulnerable, even if it isn't exactly the same fear I have, that's when you're going to start to persuade me. Because I'll think this this person knows me. This person's been where I am. I love it. Tell the seven hatters what you're currently up to and how they can connect with you. Yeah. Well, right now, uh, you've caught me on a day. My my big thing that I'm up to, I've actually been up to it for a year and a half. But for the last year and a half, I've been making a course, a digital course that I thought would take a few months. I didn't know it would be a year and a half. And it's called Hollywood Story Selling. And it is basically a course that I share everything I could think of, everything I know about how you can be a better storyteller as an entrepreneur or as a public speaker or as a business owner or as a uh, consultant or coach. How can you use Hollywood storytelling principles to make yourself a great speaker? The reason I mentioned it, the year and a half I guess you could say that year and a half ended a week and a half ago because two weeks ago today was the first time anybody bought one of these because Ed Rush, who's been spearheading the promotion of this, and I, we did our first webinar to his list. And then the next week, talk about scary. I had to sort of drive a webinar. And again, you know, as you can imagine, sort of introverted, except when I'm talking about story, that that was out of my comfort zone to do, you know, the selling of a webinar. But the response was amazing. So if you're interested in finding out about that, then just go to hollywoodstoryselling.com. Now, if you go there, it will tell you all about the course and everything, and I won't go into that. But right now, because we had such a good response, we had to close the store temporarily, but we've got a waiting list. So if you go to that site, then you'll just have to put your name on the waiting list, but you can see all about the all about the thing. You'll see the whole sales letter and so on. If you would like a little more just about uh, the six steps that I said, if you go to my website, storymastery.com, and put storymastery.com slash success, then you can download a chart that goes into much more detail and just lays out those six steps invisible form, you might say. So it's really easy understanding. You get more information about it. So you'll know more than I could share here about exactly what those steps are, because it's really very simple. I mean, you know, and it just, it will give you more. So if you want a free chart to download, you go to that address. You're a bona fide hero for script writers, for entrepreneurs alike. And I can tell you, you. I vouch, I vouch for you. I've been studying you for about a year now. I took your course. I can't wait to take the next course. I'll put everything in the show notes, all the links. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming in the seven hats. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I must say, you ask great questions. Now, I've heard you ask great questions before, but I know you really wanted to to get into the storytelling part of this. And those were great questions. And they were also questions nobody's ever asked that way. You would think, you know, but even I had never thought about turning the six stages that you were basing it on into a series of questions. So that was great. It was fun answering in that way. It made me think of things I wouldn't have thought of. And you did great with that. So I already knew you were a great interview from hearing the other podcast, but nice, nice job on that. Nice job. Thanks for all the good things you said. And thanks for everybody for listening. I'll look forward to hearing from everyone. Thank you so much. I am honored. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael. 
Let's end today with a segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. In my experience, the best entrepreneurs are incredible marketers. Think Steve Jobs, Gary Vee, Russell Brunson, to name a few. Not only do they know how to build a brand, scale it, and cultivate it for success, they have a brand story because they lived it firsthand. I asked Michael if he thinks every entrepreneur has a story, and he answered with an emphatical yes. Every entrepreneur has dozens of stories, he said. So why are entrepreneurs notorious for telling bad stories? Well, I can attest from experience that it's hard. It isn't easy to convey years of information into a succinct and impactful story that elicits emotion. And the key here is emotion. A good story helps your customers connect with you, trust you, the human behind a brand. They say people don't do business with companies, they do business with people. And that is why your story needs to be relatable, memorable, and relevant. Your customer should be able to see themselves as the character in your story. That's why I was so excited to study Michael's work on his six-stage plot structure, where he adopted the best of what Hollywood has to offer as far as storytelling. It took me years to develop my story, and to tell you the truth, it's still a work in progress. Using Michael's framework was a game changer for me, and I will always appreciate his brilliance. I wanted to thank Michael once again for joining us so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.